Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Jufus and today I'm coming to you from Toronto in Canada with our guest expert, Dr. Dave Pothia, a staff otologist and neurootologist in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Toronto General Hospital and Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto. He has a strong interest in clinical and translational research and has published and presented extensively. In 2011, he won the Pulitzer Society Prize for Research into the Treatment of Oscillopsia. His main research interest are in bilateral vestibular loss, oscillopsia, and catastrophization. Dr. Pothia, welcome. Thanks very much. It's a great pleasure. So to begin with, let's talk about video nystagmography. Um, what is the purpose of testing for spontaneous and gaze-evoked nystagmus pursuit, uh, tracking, and saccades? Um, okay, well, of course, um, video nystagmography is, I guess, a slightly better step up from um, electronystagmography. Um, it seems to be somewhat uh, more reliable. And one of the values is to look for central lesions. So uh, gaze evoked nystagmus, uh, downbeat nystagmus, or, or errors in pursuit and tracking, um, particularly uh, saccades, uh, inaccuracy of saccades, uh, of very, very substantial red flags when it comes to central lesions causing uh, dizziness. And often those the that might be the only time that those lesions are picked up. So it's great value when it comes to that. But also, um, not infrequently, uh, video nystagmography will pick up an unexpected and allegedly asymptomatic BPPV. Uh, so eye move the eye movement side of video nystagmography has enormous value in my view. Um, and. But when it comes to testing the peripheral vestibular system, it's a little bit uh, more controversial. Okay, so moving on to the next part, caloric testing. What generally are expected results with this? What numbers and cutoffs are important for you, particularly with respect to asymmetrical weakness and directional preponderance? I think the concept of directional preponderance is really almost uh, without value at this point in time. It used to have some relatively uh, helpful value prior to MRI scanning that may uh, help support the diagnosis of retrococcal But even that wasn't terribly strong. And right now, I, I don't think there's really much to say about directional preponderance. I certainly use it very seldom. Um, so it often now boils down to canal paresis. Um, and just from a conceptual point of view, when you have a test that has a cutoff at either 15 or 20 or 25 percent or whatever seems to be the laboratory norm, you've got to worry about how relevant it is to be on either side of that cutoff. So 24 is okay, but 26 is not. It seems like a very strange thing to say if it, another lab 10 miles down the road, 14 is, is okay, but 16 is not. So it's a very, it seems to be very arbitrary, and um, that is one of the huge weaknesses of calorics in my view. Um, in our lab, we use um, uh, 25%, uh, but again, I, I tend to take calorics with a pinch of salt generally um, uh, for a number of reasons. If a person um, that you're testing calorics on has bilateral vestibular loss, what's the problem with using caloric? Well, that's a good question. Um, th there's a problem with calorics in and of themselves, in that they're a proxy measurement. First thing to say is that they only measure one pair of, of semicircular canals. They have literally nothing to say, as far as we know, about the rest of the vestibular system. And it seems that a lot of 
um, determinations are made on the basis of that. So normal chloric's no problem, abnormal chloric there's a problem and it couldn't be more untrue. Um, so we don't really know exactly how they work and the way that we have been told they work is almost certainly wrong. And if you read Barony's original Nobel uh, speech that he gave for his um, the Nobel acceptance speech in 1914, it, he certainly lays the groundwork for more research in the area and certainly does not make the claims about the value of chlorics that people may expect. Um, but it boils down to the fact that we don't know what chlorics actually measure and, and I like to make the question, uh, pose the question that if someone has a 40% loss on one side, what is it that that side can do less well by 40%? And, and other than respond to a cold and warm stimulus, no one has ever given me an appropriate answer. Mm. So what we're doing is we're stimulating a vestibular system with temperature, and, and that is not a clinically relevant thing to do. Uh, so we get these uh, caloric results back, and we don't really know exactly what they mean. And what's really worrying is when we come to look at them against things like V-hit and magnetic scleral search coil and compare the two outcomes, what we find is that they don't line up very well. Right. And that, that's a real problem. Now, when you look at magnetic scleral search coil and you look at V-HIT, although there are flaws with those tests as well, they are at least measuring head movement against eye movement directly, and that is what the VOR is. Yes. So if you don't, if that, that to me is as close to a gold standard as you can get. And if the calorics don't line up with that, the area is likely to be in the calorics. And in my view, the error is in the calorics. But further to your question about cutoffs and bilateral vestibular loss, the, the pro one of the biggest problems is we're looking at uh, comparisons of slow phase velocity for irrigation of warm and cold on both sides. And the normal range is huge. So it's some say six degrees per second or four degrees per second represents the lowest level of normal. Mm -hmm. But it's not unusual for people to have. 10 degrees a second all round and be considered normal, or 15 yep. all round, or even 90 all round, or even 100 all round. So if someone has a 50% loss of vestibular function and they were originally running at 90, yes. they're now running at 45 all round, yep. they have 50% caloric loss bilaterally, but it comes back as a normal caloric because we have no idea what their normal is. Yes. Um, so. If there is absolutely no response to vestibular to caloric stimulation, um, that is used to be certainly diagnostic of a bilateral vestibular loss. But I've had now seven, I believe it's about seven patients now, who have no caloric response even to iced water, but have perfectly normal V-head. Right. So I think that there is likely to be some sort of role for calorics, um, but I just don't think we know what it is. And at our peril, we consider it to be a measurement of VOR function. Just to finish up on caloric testing, there's another interesting controversy, I guess, that in the 1980s, they performed experiments on astronauts in zero gravity and tried calorics on them, despite the fact that um, supposedly calorics rely on specific gravity changes of endolymph versus perilymph, they still were able to perform calorics in zero gravity. So what are your thoughts on this as to what it might be testing for? Mm. Now, yeah, that, that's a, that is 
scary. And, and what's more scary is how little impact that's had on the trust in calorics. Now, to be fair, the, the Skylab experiments in microgravity were not really performed the same way that we would perform them in most um, vestibular labs. But still, they, they certainly uh, managed to produce a caloric effect. And if it is entirely reliant on convection, as is stated, then that's impossible. Yes. So, so it's clearly not working like that. Mm. Um, I believe, and this is without any substantive evidence to prop it up, that it might well be a direct stimulation of the neuroepithelium of the lateral semicircular canal or perhaps other parts of the vestibular system. But I can't see how it's to do with moving of the endolym. Balance has multiple contributors to it. There's eyesight, proprioception, the vestibular system. Um, posturography tries to integrate testing of these symptoms by um, a simulated graded removal of them in turn. When do you use posturography and what useful information do you think you can obtain from patients on it? Yeah, I'm, I must admit, I don't make much use of dynamic posturography. We don't even have a dynamic posturography set up here. Um, because it doesn't really provide any diagnostic information as such. Mm -hmm. It's very, very expensive. Um, and you don't get an awful lot out of it to justify that expense. Now, I, we do make a lot of use of static posturography because it's actually quite useful for monitoring progress and uh, to see how a balance changes over time. Um, but the idea of determining the reliance on visual or proprioceptive inputs over and above vestibular inputs, I, I'm not entirely sure it has enormous uh, value over and above static posturography where you can determine roughly the same sort of thing sure. at a vastly lower cost. Moving on to a new topic, malingering. What testing or criteria do you employ to screen for malingering in your practice? This is a very difficult problem. I think this is something we need to tackle in future research, and we're certainly looking at it. It is just, in principle, impossible to prove malingering for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is there is no way to tell what, whether someone is malingering or has a conversion disorder. Mm -hmm. They can both have completely normal vestibular systems and still display symptoms. One knows that they're making it up, the other does not know that they're making it up. Yes. Yet they, yet they display almost identical features. And the treatment for both of those is entirely different. So it's, it's, I just don't see how we can really be sure that anybody is malingering enough to be able to validate a test. Um, I, the only way I can think to do it really is to get to instruct people to malinger and, and see how they do. But it's not exactly ideal. Having said that, you know, no one who is malingering has ever been taught to do so, so I can't imagine that it would be any different to being instructed. Uh, but it, my, my problem with tests for malingering is that, it, that they're almost um, universally based on the opinion of the person doing the testing uh, to set them in the malingering category so that they can then be used to validate the test. It's, it's a circular thing. So I, I just can't understand how we can get a reliable group of malingering patients to validate a test. Another important thing that is seldom mentioned, that is in my opinion, and I, and I think I can back this up, yes. it is impossible to eliminate the presence of a vestibular lesion in a person. It cannot be done. And, and there's a huge misconception that if all vestibular tests come back normal, 
the person is either malingering or has some other psychological problem. Mm -hmm. But actually, we, we cannot we cannot rule out vestibular disease under any circumstances. So, to my mind, uh, we we are making a bold statement if we claim malingering because we can't find any objective evidence of vestibular abnormality. So we have a lot of work to do to try and figure out how to do that. Yeah, that's a very good point. So moving on to vestibular physiotherapy, what are your views on it? Uh, when do you use it and what results do you expect from it in general? Vestibular physio, of course, is very, very valuable, uh, but the, the physiotherapy that's, that's, the success of the physiotherapy is, is very, very strongly associated with the quality of the physiotherapist. Sure. Quality and appropriateness of the physiotherapy they provide. Um, and I certainly see a lot of inappropriately provided physiotherapy, and I, I see a great deal of um, difficulty with the more obscure diagnoses. And I, I think that um, many practitioners are keen to do what they can for their patients, which of course is, is very admirable, but there are a number of, of cases who are just not going to get better um, with physiotherapy. Um, and of course, there's always a spectrum um, from one end where they do magnificent work regardless of the diagnosis, pretty much all the way through to they do um, an Epley maneuver or CMOT maneuver for almost everything they can find. And of course, depending on who you get, you'll have different results. Yes. But I think that you know, at the end of the day, vestibular rehab is, a, is, is, is really a very scientific and elaborate way to produce central compensation. Um, and diagnoses and lesions that would benefit from central compensation are likely to respond well, and those who won't, who don't uh, benefit from that, are not going to do well. So anything sure. that is is relapsing um, is unlikely to do well until it stabilizes. So vestibular rehab for recurrent meniere's attacks is obviously not going to work. But if you have a constant and always present sensation of imbalance, uh, that's far more likely to be better handle vestibular rehab, or if you've sustained a unilateral vestibular loss and haven't gone on to centrally compensate very well, that's an ideal candidate for vestibular rehabilitation as well. Sure. Um, but I see it applied um, a great deal where it's inappropriate. Having said that, um, if there is a BPBV uh, component to the problem, treating the BPBV will allow vestibular rehab uh, to be successful or allow central compensation to be successful in that if you're getting multiple attacks of severe vestibular stimulation, that's almost going to reset any central compensation that has been undertaken up to the point um, with underlying lesions. So if, if you have, um, say, for instance, a severe otolithic lesion that has also resulted in BPPV, until the particles are repositioned, that underlying otolithic lesion is not really going to get better at the central level until these bursts of confusing vestibular stimulation are taken care of. So next we're going to move on to vestibular evoked myogenic potentials or VEMPs. Um, what are the two types? What do they test broadly and how do you find them useful in your practice? Let me get onto another philosophical weird idea that I have, which is that Actually, the utricle and the saccule are probably our balance organs and our, the semicircular canals, and here's the controversial statement, probably don't have a lot to do with balance. Right. I think our VOR organs are our lateral and posterior and superior semicircular canals. They do a lot of VOR. Yes. The utricle and the saccule 
are mainly for balance. Now, of course, there's overlap with both. There's no way it's that discreet. But, but I think that we spend a lot of time talking about the semicircular canals and we forget about the utricle and the saccule. Yes. Now, it's important to remember that both the utricle and the saccule each, each have more neuroepithelium than the semicircular canals together. Right. So that's a lot of neuroepithelium that we tend to give little attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the utricle and the saccule really are phenomenally important, and the VIMPs are really the only decent tests that we have that are available to test these things. Uh, but the problem is they're also proxy tests. They're also either responding to sound mm-hmm. or uh, to bone vibration. So these are these are not really very good tests of what the saccule and utricle are meant to do. Sure. We don't know what part of the utricle and saccule verbs test. And you know, an interesting thought experiment is to consider that the cochlea has less neuroepithelium than either the utricle or the saccule, by some estimations. And you think of all of the information we demand of hearing, air conduction, bone conduction, uncomfortable loudness levels, topinometry, uh, ABR, ECOGs, uh, OAEs, all sorts of extensive testing is available for the cochlea, which actually represents a smaller area with each of the oatleth organs. Yes. For those, we have a yes-no test in the form of VEMP. Now, imagine sending a patient to audiology and saying, can you test their hearing? And it comes back, yes, present. That's what we're doing with the utricle and the saccule. Yes. Present response. Well, that's great, but we're talking about an area that's bigger than the cochlea. Yes. Possible value is that. And the answer is better than absent. Present is better than absent, but what does present mean and what does absent mean? So there's a huge amount to test with a binary outcome. So we really just don't know very much about the utricle and the saccule. And, and I think that much of chronic subjective dizziness, and even chronic objective dizziness, is um, probably utricle and saccule based. Yes, yeah. Now that's uh, a really good point. I, I certainly don't think many people would be happy getting uh, audiology testing back that says it's present or absent. Right. So. <laughs> right. um, okay, so we've talked to... A f- a little bit about uh, this already, but I wanted to ask you, what do you feel are the limitations of current vestibular testing modalities? So other than what we've already mentioned, do you feel there's there's any others? I think that one of the biggest limitations is that most of the tests are not widely available. But the only test that is, ironically, is the caloric test, which is probably the most unreliable test we have. Yep. So if, if I can just get one message out, it's the fact that a normal caloric does not exclude vestibular disease. In fact, no combination of tests can exclude vestibular disease. And it's the bane of my life because running a tertiary balance practice, I end up seeing patients who have been told by three or four doctors and ENT surgeons and neurologists that they have nothing wrong with their balance. It's all in their head. But of course, if you do the testing and examine them properly, most of the time you'll find something abnormal. Sure. Um, so that's that's a huge limitation. We we don't have access to the valuable test, but we have a lot of access to a test that has very little value at all. Um, and even the tests that we do have only scratch the surface of the vestibular system. So it, we we have an enormous amount to find out. I, I think we're reaching the stage now where we're doing pretty well for the semicircular canals, 
But like I said before, the utricle and the saccule are pretty much still a mystery. Mm. And they're the biggest part of the inner ear. So we really need to try to figure out uh, the way forward. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the caloric has assumed this position of unassailable gold standardness. And it really is far more unreliable than uh, people think in many cases. Sure. In your practice, do you utilize any non-traditional testing modalities or are there particular key points on history or examination that uh, I guess are, are red flags for you? Yeah, well, I, there are a few things I've picked up that I think have been useful to me. Um, I mean, for, for um, the history, um, I'm a bit of a non-traditionalist in that I'm not entirely sure that letting the patient talk for as long as they like is going to give you the answer like uh, so many people claim. Um, I think a very focused history is, is perfectly fine, but one thing on which I'm very keen to focus is the nature of the dizziness and not taking at face value what the patient tells you. And the reason for that is dizziness is such an unpleasant, frightening and nasty um, endeavor that they are really, understandably, not paying attention to exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so what, they, what often happens is the patient will want to get across to you how terrible it is rather than exactly what it feels like, which is completely understandable. But the particular issue there is how much spinning is there and how much imbalance is there. Mm. So if you ask the question, did you spin or were you imbalanced, they'll say, I spun. You say, for how long? And they might say, oh, for seven or eight or ten days. But if you ask more carefully, are you sure that you're spinning that whole time or did you spin for a bit and then become imbalanced? The vast majority of the time they'll say, well, I probably spun for a few hours, went to sleep. Next day I was terribly, terribly imbalanced and that went on for a week. Now that's a very different business to a week of spinning. Yes. And that's a, that's a critical thing to really nail down. And often it's very difficult to do so, but a few hours of spinning followed by severe imbalance is, is a very different beast to seven days of spinning. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that more than a day of spinning actually exists. I think we, we've come to accept that um, vestibular neuritis, for instance, is uh, days and days and days of spinning, but I think it probably is much shorter than that. But the residual imbalance is so severe that it you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other as far as the patient is concerned. Yes. Um, and just a small tip on that regard is don't, don't say, were you spinning or were you just imbalanced? You don't want to downplay the severity of imbalance, otherwise, you know, understandably, they'll deny it. You have to say, were you spinning or did you have severe imbalance? And much more, they're much, much more likely to admit but actually, I was just severely, severely imbalanced. Yeah, yeah that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something I've found of enormous importance, and I hope we'll get to it later about the psychological uh, aspect of dizziness, um, is that we have found, and there is actually good data to, to back this up, that patients who have a terrible response to caloric testing, in other words, they absolutely hated it, and had a terrible experience are often um, also having difficulty with anxiety overlay. Mm -hmm. So if you ask the patient, how did your caloric water test go? And they say, oh, yeah, I, I spun, why? 
you don't have to worry about anxiety overlay for the most part. But if the person says it was terrible, I don't ever want to do it again, I thought I was going to die, it was horrific, and you know, many people do feel it that way, they're more likely to have an anxiety overlay. So that is one truly useful use of caloric testing, is to determine the person's response to a vestibular stimulus. As part of the clinical exam, um, don't forget about the oscillopsia test uh, and tests of dynamic visual acuity. Um, they are some of the most sensitive tests and very, very easy to perform. Don't use a, don't use a Snellen chart, use a Logmar chart. You can download them off the internet. Um, and I find them extremely, extremely helpful for picking up um, high-velocity vestibular loss. Um, as far as the lab is concerned, we do use magnetic scleral search coil, but that's something that is so obscure and weird, I, I couldn't possibly suggest anyone uh, goes to the expense of getting something like that. Sure. We're lucky to happen to have it uh, in our unit. Okay, um, moving on to one of your research interests uh, in catastrophization. Can you explain to us what this is and how this impacts on chronic subjective dizziness? Okay, so uh, I probably I would say this because this is my thing, but I think this is probably the most important thing to consider when thinking about people with chronic disease problems. It's more important, I believe, than the actual underlying lesion. The, the concept of catastrophization comes from the pain literature, and it's defined as a negative mental set brought to bear on anticipated or actual unpleasant experiences. So we're all familiar with it already. It's just a matter of making it a bit more scientific. So we all know that some patients have the most horrific organic disease. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to bother them very much. But by contrast, we also have those patients who come in with undetectable organic disease that is destroying their lives. And at the end of the day, the person whose life is being destroyed deserves the, the, the treatment more than the person who is not. And it's really not about where the symptoms are generated. It's about the fact that they have severe symptoms. And I think it's easy to miss that trick that... that um, People would say, well, you know, it's not real, therefore it's not my problem. But at the end of the day, if we are not going to treat busy, busy patients, no one else will. Mm -hmm. So a catastrophizing personality often manifests as severe anxiety. And um, the way I illustrate it to patients is to give them a little push on the shoulder and say, you know, was that threatening? And they always answer, well, no. I said, well, okay, um, you know, it's not threatening because you're sitting down and you know I don't want to hurt you and you're in a brightly lit room. But imagine that you had a, your heels to a 2,000-foot drop and a stranger came up to you and gave you a push like that. How would that feel? And of course, they go, you know, they go pale and start sweating, thinking, oh, that would be horrendous. Yes. To which I say, well, it's exactly the same push on the shoulder. Why is it different? Mm. And the answer is the brain makes it different. If you're anxious and scared and freaked out, as many, many, many balanced patients are, it amplifies the symptoms to the point where it takes a 1 out of 10 problem and makes it a 9 out of 10 problem. And if that is not brought to bear in the treatment of these problems, you're missing 80-90% of the cause of the symptoms themselves. And the beauty part is it can be treated and there are psychiatrists who are excellent at dealing with anxiety overlay using many, many different techniques. Um, and the, the improvements can be enormous. Um, but there's actually a, a new finding, we haven't quite published yet, but we're in the process of doing so, which is patients with high levels of catastrophization are also not responding to vestibular rehab 
like non-catastrophizers are. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have a patient who has very limited organic trouble, but very symptomatic, and they're not getting better with vestibular rehab, you've probably got a catastrophizer. And they need a different treatment. They need to be treated psychologically before they're treated organically. Right. But it's important to make the distinction between psychogenic dizziness and catastrophization. Again, I'll, I'll make a controversial statement and say I don't really believe in psychogenic dizziness. I don't. I, I, it may exist, but if it does, I believe it's very rare for a number of reasons. And the first one is you cannot exclude vestibular pathology. Yes. So, so to say someone is psychogenic, you're basically saying it's not from their inner ear. It's a pretty bold statement to say that it's not from their inner ear when we are nowhere near being able to test all of it, or even most of it. Yes. That, that's a pretty bold thing to state. Um, and uh, the other reason is that they all seem to give a very similar story, which seems unlikely if they're making it all up. So when it comes to the psychogenic part, the genic part is the issue that I have. The psychological part is phenomenally important. Yes. But it's not coming from anxiety. It's not coming from the brain. It's coming from the inner ear. And it's coming probably from the inner ear lesion that you or I, or most of us, probably wouldn't even notice. But if you have a psychological overlay, you do notice it. And if you have a severe psychological overlay, you can notice it to the point where it can put you in a wheelchair. Yes. And I think if we only look at the organic side of things, in many, many patients, they will be vestibular cripples for decades unless we deal with this. And the, the improvements that you can get are absolutely stunning. Some of the best outcomes are the patients that we've traditionally always wanted to get out of our rooms as quickly as possible. So moving on to another point, vestibular implants, how far away do you think that they are and what promise do they hold? I couldn't tell you. It's every time I I am pessimistic about them, they come up with something very cool. So I think they're coming, um, but I think they've got a long way to go. I mean, I was initially a little bit skeptical because when I heard the you know press releases around them and the buzz surrounding them, the the usual introduction would be balance is a major problem and imbalance is very dangerous and falls are very nasty and we need to stop people feeling dizzy. Etc. Etc. And then they would implant the semicircular canal, and I'd think, well, that's not going to help your balance very much, but it might help your oscillopsia or your vestibular ocular reflex. But I just don't see it as a really a, a balance treatment. Um, and all of the testing seems to be more along the lines of let's see what your dynamic visual acuity is with this implant, rather than or what your VOR is like, rather than true balance. So it seems to be looking at two different areas, selling one and actually paying for the other. So I, I don't know how much that has come to unity, but I, I think it will. And I think that um, it's amazing what a, a truly neurally plastic mind can do, even with the tiniest of, um, of, of anchors and inputs um, that can be provided. Now, we don't have any experience of direct implants here, but we've done a lot of biofeedback work. And what struck me when I was doing uh, biofeedback, um, and we've done predominantly auditory biofeedback, is that when I tried it on myself, I thought there's no way anybody is going to get any useful balance information from these sounds. Um, it just seemed too crude. Um, but when, you put, when we put the device on someone's head who had bilateral vestibular loss, 
they responded to it instantly to a phenomenal level because obviously their brain is hungry for that information. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the same will apply to vestibular implants. I think they're coming. How far away is difficult to say. Um, I think the exciting area is um, the area we're working with now with um, the Sick Kids Hospital across the road. We're, we're looking at integrating them into cochlear implants. And, and I think that's the sort of thing that can really take things forward, given that you're already putting a massive electrode into the ear. Yes. Um, you're, you're, in, in children, you're dealing with a massively plastic brain. Um, and we've already had some very, very promising success in that area. So, so there's no, no reason why that can't be transferred as time goes on to the adult uh, acquired population. Um, yeah. so, so I think it's definitely coming and um, uh, work by Della Santina and others is absolutely stunning and very impressive. Um, not quite there yet. And there are all sorts of other barriers that need to be addressed, like um, are you prepared to risk your hearing to fix your balance? Um, sure. It's a, a tricky issue. Yes. But I've no doubt that eventually it will reach the stage where that will be not much of a consideration. Okay. So for the final part of the interview, um, we're going to move on to something called the final word. It's a chance for you to either reiterate something important we've already covered, talk about something important that we've missed, or talk about some other important future directions. So for the final word, I'll hand over to you, uh, Dr. Pothia. Um, thanks. I, I haven't really thought of anything particular, but maybe just to reiterate a couple of things. Um, first is that um, caloric testing, as if I haven't said it enough, really needs to be viewed with suspicion and more work needs to be done to find out what it is. There is no doubt there is a caloric response. Um, and it's very clear that there's a very strong caloric response. How does it work and what, what value is it? Um, but at the moment, don't think that the caloric represents a good picture of the VOR. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is that, um, and this flows into catastrophization, is that many patients that come to see us are absolutely desperate with balance. And we all know that balance, whether or not you agree or, or not, is a huge problem for patients' quality of life. Massive. And it seems so trivial compared to head and neck cancer. But it destroys people's lives. And it doesn't matter whether the person has largely psychological um, components of their disorder or whether it's largely organic, if they are suffering a great deal, they need to be helped. And if we don't want to treat them directly, that's fine, but we need to send them in a, into an area that can help them. Um, but if you are really exhaustive in your um, physical exam and really exhaustive in the testing that you do, I, uh, we, we did a little bit of a retrospective on 500 patients and found that you can find something abnormal in over 90% of them. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you don't, uh, just check cranial nerves and send them for a caloric and an audiogram, you're going to miss a lot and write off a lot of people as not sick when actually they are. And I know this because this is exactly how I used to be until I took an interest in vestibular um, medicine, vestibular surgery. Yes. Um, for the surgeons out there, I have one little tidbit that I've been doing a surgery um, for many a disease um, where I section the stapedius intensive tympani tendons. And I, I heard uh, about this from a very interesting uh, paper written by an Austrian group. Um, and it had some very promising results. So watch this space. Finally, another useful operation for, for dizziness. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that uh, interesting and very thought-provoking discussion, Dr. Pothia. You're very welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.